Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Eastern Border and Business Basics. We are here in Kiev, in Goldabar. Just arrived after a long ride, and we're meeting here with Mark from um, Frontier Management. Frontier Think. Frontier View. Frontier View. Sorry, this is the third take of this. Uh, it's been a bit tiring, but Mark's here and doing some business and doing interesting analytics, which I think you might find interesting. So, Mark, why are you here? What do you, what do, you do here? So, I'm here be on a research trip. So, I'm the managing director for Frontier View, which is a global macroeconomic political risk consulting firm based in Washington D.C. I work out of the London office, which covers Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Uh, as managing director of Europe, my responsibility is sort of everything across Europe, obviously, but uh, my main focus has been Russia, CIS markets, Russia, Ukraine, and, and the whole region. It's my academic background, my professional background, the last about 20 years now of my life. And I'm here uh, basically doing a couple of things, but doing research uh, on the ground, meeting with clients, uh, economists, journalists, officials, et cetera, to, to get a better feel for the investment environment. And obviously, as part of that, understanding the outlook for the war, you know, outlook for the end of the war, potentially uh, what you know, security guarantees look like, reconstruction, money, rebuilding the country, et cetera, et cetera. So trying to get a better feel for that. I was actually here uh, in May, so just about two months ago. I was here for about 10 days doing research. And I've come back, and actually in the interim, I have decided to actually start a new business here. So I'll be starting a new business with my friend and new business partner, uh, Andrew Prima of Ukraine Business News. And we're launching what's going to be called Ukraine Business Network. So I'll be moving here uh, in October and leaving my current job and uh, likely doing some contract work and things like that, but then starting this business here. Obviously, with the the vision of attracting foreign investment to help the country obviously rebuild and reconstruct following the war. Yeah, following the war, that's the thing. You are here very early, some would say. What does it make you think? How long will it take for the war to end so that investment will start coming here? And how the rebuilding process is going to look like? You're the person that is financial analysis. You're probably sitting on, on, the, on the bleeding edge of these things. What makes you optimistic enough to be here at this time at looking at these prospects and starting your business here? Right. All right. Well, the, keep this uh, answer to less than three hours. Uh, but uh, 
In short, because I do fundamentally believe Ukraine is going to win, the Western world will politically, uh, if not at a humanitarian level, feel compelled to not only continue to support Ukraine to win, uh, stand up for the Western order, of course, but then also help the country uh, revive, rebuild, reconstruct back after the war. I don't believe the war is sustainable for the long term for Russia, actually, more at a political level, sort of this war of attrition. I think we saw that with the Prigozhin mutiny, of course. And at the end of the day, and, and you'll get a feel for this, you know, talking to people on the ground here, Ukrainians are fighting really for the, their existence, the country's existence and for the future. And I mean, I, I just heard a story yesterday from a client how numerous young men, actually, that she knew of personally came back from Poland because they said, we have no future outside of Ukraine. This is our country. We need to fight for the existence of this country. You obviously don't have that level of, of morale and determination for the long term, necessarily from the Russian side. So I, that's one of numerous reasons why I, I tend to, to believe, in short, and we can get into the details of it, that Ukraine will fundamentally win the war, right? We can define what winning actually means and looks like, but I've changed my view to believe that Ukraine can win the war, likely to win the war by the end of next year. Uh, I did not necessarily actually believe this until about May, June, just in the last couple of months here, which is when I got confident then to, of course, start building this company. And I think also part of that, likely even before Ukraine more or less wins the war, uh, whatever victory exactly looks like, I also tend to believe that Putin will be pushed out of power in that time period as well. So point being, that will then allow for the investment environment to open up more clearly for the country. And so I'm coming here now, basically get in early. Uh, get in to help bring that money uh, over time and, and be sort of the first mover in this market that I think has a lot of potential. What do you think is going to happen to Putin? Because my likely scenario is that I see Russia somewhat dissolving into its internal structure because it's kind of, in my point, it's the world's last colonial empire in a way, just like British Empire was. But a lot of people think there's going to be a successor, but what's going to happen to Putin? Oh, that's a complex question, but each of us seems to have our own answers. What's yours? What do you think is going to happen to Putin? So I, th- I think there's a, a short-term answer and a longer-term answer. Uh, some of the stuff you're talking about are, are a little bit more longer-term, right? Collapse of the states and, and post- potential disintegration. What I tend to think, uh, this has all changed, uh, evolving fastly, quickly after the, the Prigozhin mutiny, right? Basically, I think he is going to be removed from power over time. Now, that, there's several methods that can happen under, uh, right? I actually tend to think it'll be less likely a sort of a violent solution against him. I tend to think, actually, there's, and there's somewhat of a historical precedent for this, he may just be sort of sidelined over time. And I think there's actually a relevant analogy here with the ouster of Gorbachev in 91. I think there's some interesting historical parallels here. If you look at, for example, starting in, in 1991, the August coup, ultimately, Gorbachev got blamed for the very coup that came against him, right? He got blamed for having put in place those very individuals who then you know, tried to remove him from power. So afterwards, he then became sort of sidelined, made irrelevant. He he wasn't making decisions and being informed of decisions afterwards. And I think that's similar to what is going to begin to happen now, right? Putin has had this sort of veil of invincibility, you know, just preeminent above the entire system, this ultimate arbiter, this consolidator of power, the one who decided which faction won which fight, et cetera, et cetera. And now that he's lost that role, he's lost that that mystique above all the system, that is one of his pillars of power that it's critical that he's lost that. And so now we're starting to see, and I think this is going to accelerate dramatically, different individuals, different power structures, different factions making their own decisions, right? Taking power in their own hands. When they get difficult orders to implement, 
in the past, they maybe would have done that, knowing, well, Putin will remain in power for the long term, and I will benefit by, of course, being rewarded financially very well. Well, now those financial rewards aren't quite coming, right? And they're not going to be able to come in the future. That's one of many reasons they will then, now that they've also seen Putin been exposed as being vulnerable and weak, start to maybe disregard some of these orders or take power into their own hands, take decisions in their own hands. And so I kind of see over time, the critical point here being over time with further Ukrainian victories on the battlefield, this further undermining his authority. Uh, and then he sort of gets sort of more or less sidelined and marginalized and sort of pushed out of power. And then as far as successors, I mean, sure, we could throw out one name after another. I don't think they have a, a good idea within the Kremlin itself. And I think ultimately I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if it's not a base case expectation that someone who's currently relatively unknown would intentionally be put in the position of power, precisely because they don't have that existing massive power faction underneath them. And they would be more or less controllable by a sort of a, a coterie of Russian leaders, which looking at Russian history, is, as you know, uh, this is how Russia has been sort of ruled for, for centuries. So I think we would move more into that dynamic in the short term, right? So that's sort of how, and, and by the way, that does entail, uh, under my view, some level of stability within the system. These guys, they don't want to lose their wealth, their status, their influence that they've gained over the last two, three, some of these guys three plus decades. They don't want to lose that, of course, but they would like to remove Putin over time. So the combination of those factors will actually allow them to sort of maybe continue this Putinist system, but without Putin at the helm. And what do you think is going to happen to Ukraine? You're here doing rebuilding stuff. How much money do you think Ukraine will need after this war to rebuild and reach some level of prosperity? That's a long shot, of course, but give us a ballpark figure and how do you think business is going to function in Eastern Europe? Because I'm pretty sure that this rebuilding thing is going to make some people, well, extremely wealthy, especially construction companies. So, Yes. So, uh, I mean, look, World Bank has estimated uh, several months ago it's over $400 billion. Obviously, that's a couple multiples of Ukraine's entire GDP. Uh, so, obviously, massive. And that's to date, right? By the end of this year, estimates range from, you know, doubling that, approaching $1 trillion. To put a, a nice round figure on it, I think we should be expecting somewhere in the vicinity of about a trillion dollars in total. Now, that's covering absolutely all things and everything over the next, you know, say through 2028, 2030. But the big issue here is more, whether it's at 1.2 trillion or it's 815 billion, massive amounts of money, how do you actually fund this mm -hmm. reconstruction, right? Absolutely critical this, and, and this needs to be discussed far more, uh, and, and EU in particular has to get more serious about this, is using in some form Russia's FX reserves that are currently under sanction, that have been frozen, right? U.S. seems a little bit more aggressive about this. Uh, there's a lot of discussion pushing towards this, but nothing real concrete. The problem is if that money doesn't come, you're not going to get the private money, right? You're not going to get all of the private investors to come back. So you need to get, as a sort of a foundation for reconstruction, some part at least of Russia's FX reserves. Add to that then, of course, money coming from World Bank, different multilateral organizations, and then the private money can can start adding in on top of that. And of course, we're talking over the course of, say, the rest of this decade. So a lot of money required, a lot of needs here. How do you get access to the FX reserves? They're trying to find legal avenues. Do they declare Russia a terrorist state at some point, depending upon what they may do in the future? Uh, so that's one potential avenue, of course. Or alternatively, maybe in some sort of ceasefire peace settlement, maybe in a post-Putin era, some faction of Russian leaders come to some sort of agreement to help fund the reconstruction using those reserves. So it's difficult to say right now, but without that money, phew, reconstruction is going to be, will be tough. 
how do you the whole business environment here in Ukraine? Are things still Soviety or are they moving in the Western direction? Because for me, I'm from Latvia myself, and I've seen a lot of this transition happen in our own country as we join the EU and everything. And there are a lot of things that need to go out, a lot of things need to come in, business culture changes. What are the greatest challenges that Ukrainians themselves face that maybe they they haven't grasped that's going to change? And the business culture in Ukraine and to the West, it's not an economist here, hard to form this question, but you probably understand what I'm, what I'm trying to go to. I see what you're getting at. I mean, one thing, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, I mean, on the positive side, right? I was just reading an article this morning about how basically <laughs> Ukraine is better digitized than Germany. This, by the way, uh, we noticed this because we have a German driver here uh, who's doing this, and he also noticed that Ukraine is better digitized than Germany. <laughs> I mean, it's maybe better digitized than I living in London. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable here, and, it, and it's just commonplace amongst you know people under 50 years old. This is just a part of their lives, and they're accustomed to it, and they you know they've adapted quickly to it all. So one thing in the digital realm. I mean, massive uh, improvements, opportunities. Look, I, on the business side of things, obviously, it's it, the constant talk in the West, unfortunately, uh, is related to corruption, right? Lack of rule of law, etc. Every single client, every, all the economists, the, every analyst I've spoken to, or the officials, this comes up over and over and over again. Why and, and when would Western investors come pouring money back in here if they think it's going to go to some guy's bank account in Switzerland or, or elsewhere, right? So that's a massive problem. There's been unanimous agreement, though, and I'm, t I'm talking about executives, 65-year-old executives who've seen it all from the Soviet period, the 90s to today, to young executives, uh, you know, in the early 30s. This consensus that it'll take time, but it is inevitable. It has to happen. This business culture, the economic culture of the country is going to evolve and rapidly and obviously accelerated by the war itself. I would add to that a second point. There's going to be significant political pressure because, particularly after the war, you're going to have a completely new and dynamic political environment here. You're going to have new political parties. You're going to have a lot of returning veterans from the front lines. And these guys aren't going to, they're not going to put up with it. They're going to say, I didn't watch my friends die or get wounded or lose an arm on the front lines so we could keep enriching these oligarchs for another 20 years, for another generation, and have my kids live in the same country that I grew up in and that my parents lived through. Uh, so there's gonna be enormous, enormous pressure. And then I think another sort of more subtle uh, cultural element, and um, you see this in Latvia too, I mean, you see this throughout Central Europe. They had these questions, of course, 25 years ago throughout Central European countries. Now, of course, they've made advances, but granted, some of the countries in Southeastern Europe in particular, without naming names, do continue to struggle with the, you know, the rule of law environment, etc. But for this new generation, you know, under, say, 45 years old, 40 years old, there's just more of an expectation of living more like Europeans and not putting up with this entrenched corruption that exists here, obviously, in Ukraine, obviously, in Russia, and, you know, to an extent in these Central European countries. But it's evolving just from a cultural point of view already. I think in Ukraine, it's going to be accelerated dramatically as a result of, of the war. It'll take, but it'll also take time. That's the unanimous opinion by business executives. It'll continue to improve, but it'll take time. I want to talk about Russia a bit more and, and the things that, dear listeners, are, we get contacted sometimes by these companies who contact both of us and it's just a bit of a mess. I know one of the things that I wanted to know is like, about Russia's own perspectives, because a lot of people currently in Russia, economists speaking, I recently looked at their own statistics because I read a lot about Russian market because economy is a huge part of what I do on my show. And they have this uh, credit load of about 80% for each household. So that means that 80% of their income for about 20% of families 
is just spent on, on paying loans. So they also want to look for help. And there's this African Congress happening in Russia right now. They're also dealing with China and India. A lot of people think it's only the West pressuring Russia on and that China is going to come and save them. And that now this African Congress or something, the Global South, Unity, the BRICS summit. What is the chances of Russia you know, pulling out of these sanctions? And Because these economical issues, you know, wars are won by logistics. Therefore, we need to put the squeeze on that. For What do you think is going to happen there? Uh, so looking at the economy, no, China's not going to save Russia. They have no intention to. China will do what's in their benefit, their best interests, and that's that's the extent of it. Africa is incapable of saving Russia, but a nice ally periodically to have, maybe for votes in the UN and different things like that. On the economic side, look, Russia was resilient to the sanctions for effectively one reason, two reasons, I'll say. Two reasons and two reasons only. Very strong technocratic leaders within the central bank and the Ministry of Finance who help manage this extremely volatile process. Which, by the way, the Russians that I follow to in the opposition, they think that liberal agents from Western Europe and they want to get removed as soon as possible. Uh, <laughs> I won't comment on that. <laughs> no, no, but that's kind of funny because, you know... Um, Yeah. yeah. Well, they're the ones who saved this economy. I mean, this would have this would have happened if uh, Patrushev had put in the people he'd want to put in, and it wouldn't have quite functioned this way. So they should be thinking they're lucky stars that they have the right people in place. Uh, so that's and then secondly, the fact that almost miraculously. Russia was able to retransit all of that oil, which the vast majority of their oil used to be sold to the West, primarily to Europe, right? Transit all of those volumes. They were given massive lead time because you, <laughs> the EU basically gave them a six-month notice period. Uh, basically able to transfer all those volumes to China and India very specifically. That's what saved this economy, period. Oil prices are still, if you look at the 10-year period, quite high. Right? They're not as high as 15 years ago, but quite high over this 10-year period. And then Russia is able to get those volumes all the way. And I mean, we spoke with energy analysts last year. All of them unanimously said, uh, it seems almost impossible. Russia can get that amount of oil redirected in this shorter period of time. They managed to do it, sort of by hook or crook, and there's a lot of details there, but they uh, did it, and that's what saved the economy. I know that they gave like a massive, I don't know, a 30% discount from the oil price to Indians, at least. For some time, that actually, that has narrowed, right? Brent prices have come down, the, the price they've been selling to China and India has been substantially lower than that, but it has actually creeped up a bit. So the discount isn't quite as much, but there still is a, a notable discount. That said, with the volumes they're selling, they're able to keep things more or less afloat. So that's been absolutely critical. Gas exports, it'll take them years to reroute gas, they have to build new pipeline infrastructure to, to the east, etc. But that's not, that's a minority of their energy export revenue. So it's, it's, the story's about oil, oil's what saved them. The other sanctions are impactful, but it, actually another problem is that very impactful sanctions were the, on chips, semiconductors and everything, which have now been rerouted through China primarily. And Russia's actually importing the same amount of chips that they were before the war. So that actually, that long-term sort of devastation of the, this new economic era, this new economy, that actually may not exactly happen here in the, in the near term. But in your case, that's, that's sort of the economic story. That's how they've been saved, more or less. What should I get to next? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. I watch Russian economists as well, like Dmitry Potapenko, really respected guy. And he constantly states that what's going to destroy Russian's economy is their attitude to small, small and medium businesses and their tax policies and all that. That's basically their own corruption. Like They'll reroute things on the chips, but the rerouting is slow, it's more expensive, they could do it, and a lot of money gets stolen. So just, just, just give you a comment because, you know. Chips go to the defense sector now. They're not going to the real economy, right? I mean, this is this is the point. Yeah, that's also the thing. Like, they're, they're, uh, look, if you look at the numbers there in the recent economy, then, yeah, building rockets kind of boosts up your GDP for a short while. But mm. what else are you going to do with the rockets? You shoot them out and they don't produce anything else. It's not like producing a combine or something. Right. There's no second, third order effects. Right. Look, the economy is in, is in a lot of trouble. I mean, you, have the, you already have the mobilization. You're having this more creeping mobilization. It, politically, it's risky, but it, they're going to do some form of mobilization, maybe public, maybe formal, maybe less formal. But they changed laws recently to try to bring more men into the military. This is causing major labor market disruptions. So you're seeing, Central Bank has already said that this is the worst labor market since the 1990s. Nearly three vacancies for every unemployed. I mean, it, the it, the numbers are really quite staggering. And it's going to get worse, of course. So that's sort of economics. You mentioned small and medium enterprises. Unlike, you know, Western countries where United States, UK, most of economic activity occurs through SMEs, right? Small, medium enterprises. In the case of Russia, it's about 20%. And that number has gone down over the years under Putinism, under the centralization of, of the political system, the economic system. And that's only going to get worse in this era of repression we've seen <laughs> with these nationalizations, uh, right? We just saw Danone and Carlsberg effectively expropriated and handed to, to friends. Uh, of Kamsan Kadyrov, no less, which is extra funny. Well, his nephew, in particular. So, you know, if you want it, 
it's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> That's the definition of it. And Kavalchuk's, uh, so, you know, Putin's lifelong uh, good friend. He's got a nice little gift. Uh, early Christmas came. So, so yeah, I mean, but these types of decisions, this, these, this does not, of course, <laughs> I mean, if you're uh, a small business owner, if you're an entrepreneur, you're an investor, these things aren't the types of things you want to see that gives you confidence and, oh, I can, you know, build up a nice business here and uh, there'll be no political repercussions and potentially expand the business, et cetera. So devastating, of course. And it's just going to get worse. And you've lost your export markets. Imports are much more expensive. The ruble doesn't have any opportunity to improve. So that, you know, drives up costs of doing business. Uh, so all these things are just getting more and more problematic over time. Yeah, currently, I think they're propping up the ruble by selling yuan massively to create a kind of a flooded economy with yuans. Uh, again, this time with China comes in, because a lot of Russian side thinks that their future is tied with, with China. And when Xi Jinping arrived in, in, in Moscow, that was kind of funny. They even made like a, a children's drawing contest about Russia's glorious future with China and all this whatnot. Uh, so, so again, we have to look at the, these guys here. What is their end game? They, they only work for their interests themselves, but what does China really want in, in Russia and how do they view this? Uh, look, at the end of the day, they want a fellow ally that's standing up against the Western order, right? So, so the, And they have that, obviously. But there is some divergence, right? I mean, China wants to reform in its own interests, in its own way, the existing globalization period that obviously the United States sort of inaugurated late 80s, early 90s, and now they want to just sort of reform that system. Russia is obviously out to actually detonate it, right? We're trying to blow it up and start something new. China's not on board with that. China arguably is uh, the greatest beneficiary of, of globalization for the last 30 years. So there's major point of divergence. China, look, they're not going to try to save Russia. They had every opportunity if they wanted to financially in defense sector. When you mentioned the, the summit in Moscow, Russia was dying for an agreement to build another gas pipeline into, into China. China showed next to no interest, right? Asking for loans, more, more financial support. China showing no interest, right? So the major areas where they could, could have been helping any day of any week at any point in the last year and a half, and they have decided not to in the, in the major areas that, that Russia needs assistance. So that tells you what you need to know. Uh, and, and look, at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at the figures, the amount that China trades with Russia relative to what it trades with the Western world, right? Imports and exports with the EU and the United States combined. I mean, the numbers are just staggering. I mean, there's nothing to even discuss. The United States and Europe, simply the growth in trade in 2022 compared to 2021, the growth in trade between the Western world and China is larger than the entire trade relationship with all the growth that China and Russia have enjoyed recently. It, that mere growth is larger than the entire in absolute terms trade relationship between Russia and China. This is a matter of national security for China to maintain those economic linkages with the West. And so they're not going to let Russia, of course, get in the way of that. So they keep on sort of treading this fine line, sort of, you know, staying on the fence more or less and give some political rhetoric, rhetorical support where, where, where they can, but of course, never supporting too much to anger the West too much. So, and that's going to continue going forward. Yeah, the big question, obviously, economy-wise, is the grain deal these days. It has been disrupted. It's been, you know, cut off. A lot of people are super happy about it in Russia. As I read these people who probably don't understand how economy works very well, though, but uh, some people are very really happy about this. Some people say Russia should have joined it. 
and uh, I watched the summit what was like 20 million grain tons of grain sent to Africa which is like less than 1% that they receive in exports like what's going to happen with that because it's going to be even more political instability as we see like in Sri Lanka these days in Pakistan and Lebanon too and now we have uh, things in Niger other places I'm really worried about the next decade and I really want some stability in the world and I don't know how how is the grain deal to impact all this situation which is already worsening in the, on the planet Right. Well, I mean, the Green Deal, this depends upon, one, if Russia comes back to the deal, which I suspect they don't. Uh, I'll get into that in a second. Uh, and then, two, of course, this has to do with the duration of the war, what type of ceasefire peace terms we come to at some point. Uh, but I don't think this is sustainable, say, five years down the road. Right. So I, I do see this more as this will be highly disruptive. I think as long as I do tend to think this will be in place for the duration of the war. I say that with mild confidence. I think there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. It's hard to know exactly. I also think I think it's an important point as to why this happened, right? I mean, for the previous year, Russia had had abided by this deal, right? Most of the world benefited, and also critically, I think the point was they were keeping this deal in place so they could appease to the global south. They could sort of try to create this, you know, alternative block against the Western order. Right. So I think they they deferred to those international political interests to try to, you know, in a way, almost create that like we saw in the Cold War, this non-aligned block or this block that goes with China and Russia, etc. I think that's what's actually potentially happening now is that Russia's domestic political needs are superseding those international political interests. I don't think it's coincidence that they decided to leave this deal one month after having the biggest threat to political stability in the country after this Prigozhin mutiny, right? I tend to think what's actually going on here is more about appealing to these, as you mentioned, right, these far-right, pro-war, the angry patriots, right? Angry patriots is a trademark of my, my company. I trademarked this in, in the EU. I, I have mentioned this in some places, but you have, like, when, when Girkin started this, I blatantly stole his logo and names and went to, went to some of my lawyers. So um, you are always free to use this. But yes, thank you. I'll, 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 I'll cite you in the future. It's not after you, because you're, you're on our side. I just did this so that they can't have any cells in the EU, just, just to cheer you up a bit. Very good, very good. Doing your part, I like it. Yeah. But I think this is what's going on here. I, and, and you have to think, this is the same week when left the grain deal, within two or three days that Gherkin, right, was arrested. So I think that's actually, I mean, reading between the lines here, not knowing everything behind the scenes, you can never quite know. But I mean, these are pretty monumental shifts in policy. And they happened within less than a week of each other. And so I, I tend to think they're, they're actually related. I think Putin, on the one hand, was appeasing to all of these angry patriots who've been saying since the beginning of the war, why are we allowing the Ukrainian economy to continue to export? I mean, if we're at war with this country, we're at war with this country, let's take it down, right? And so keeping that grain deal, keeping that you know, lifeblood for the economy alive, it makes sense from a strategic point of view. So I think on the one hand, he decided, let's end the grain deal and, and appease them, but remind them, Now uh, there's no more criticism, right? Unquestioned loyalty I'm demanding, no more criticism of the war, and Gherkin's arrested. So anger them on the one hand, appease them on the other, and hopefully he can sort of politically maneuver his way through this one. I have a question, by the way, which I ask to all Americans that I, I see in this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Because I've been into trouble and argued with a lot of people. And why do you think so many Americans are still very pro-Putin in a way? Because that's, that's, that's the thing that I ask to all Americans in general, because I speak to a lot of you. And, well, I have gotten into some conflicts and they, they truly seem that there's something wrong with this whole thing. Where's the love from Putin coming from? And this is to you as an American, as an, as an intelligent American who understands the situation. What do you think is going on here? Um, a couple of things. Uh, one, Americans have always had a... Uh a certain reverence for, I guess, resolving problems with bravado, right? I mean, look, we are an immigrant nation of settlers. Take matters into your own hand, take control, take responsibility, be the big man, be the tough guy. 
so I think some of that resonates with Putin. Also, Putin, at least ostensibly claiming traditional values and family, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, a lot of those themes resonate with the American public, the American right in particular. I think there's a lot of that going on there. And there's, there's also this, sort of this almost admiration for knowing Putin is kind of, prior to the war at least, right, the little guy. And he actually has the guts, has the bravado to stand up and, and yell at the big guy on the block over and over and over and not care and kind of get away with it, right? I think there's sort of this, yeah. To my perspective, I'm a Latvian. Yeah, to us, Putin was never the little guy. He's like the big guy in the black over here, yeah, you know? Right. From Washington, D.C., that's not the, you know, half world away, uh, you know, with <laughs> an economy, several multiples uh, larger. It's kind of like, and, and by the way, what's there to take really serious? Because from the American point of view, the American rights point of view, we already did this before. We won the Cold War. Right? Reagan already took you guys down by their vision. I'm not describing how I view things. But Reagan already took you guys down, so you guys could kind of say and do whatever you want 20, 25, 30 years later. The, the game was already played out and we won, right? Yeah, well, that's an interesting point because like, uh, Reagan still has a lot of reverence here in, in Eastern Europe and, and a lot of other these things. For example, uh, John McCain has a street name after him here in Kiev because John McCain was like felt one of these things. So it's not always like that. We kind of like Americans here. You might be surprised. Well, you, you might have noticed at this point. I'm, I'm aware. And I've spent a good amount of time in Poland. So there's reverence there as well. But, yeah. The thing is about the, your... I want to ask about your business because uh, we're going to have to wrap up, but only because my battery is about to die here. <laughs> That's the only reason. When I'll come back to Kiev, I'll definitely want to talk to you again, though. But I have a question, like, what's your business going to do? What's your plan? Like, to build a business, you must have a plan. What are you going to do here? What's your goal do you want to achieve? The goal is very simple. I mean, I, I want to be a part of rebuilding this country, attracting money and, and jobs back into this, this nation. I mean, obviously, I deeply believe in the what the country is fighting for. And so I, I want to be a part of that. I, I feel I'm well-placed to be a part of that, having dedicated my academic, professional life to, to this region, basically since, I mean, even God, going back to university, you know, my college degree, my graduate degree, uh, et cetera. So that, I mean, just this is deeply personal, to be perfectly honest. So, And then it happens to mold very well with my professional skills, abilities, my, my experience. So basically the business in, in short, uh, again, called Ukraine Business Network, uh, co-founded with my, my business partner, Andrew Prima, who runs Ukraine Business News here and has been for several years, which is a well-known journalist outlet here in, in Ukraine. The idea is to, I mean, ultimately provide this sort of one-stop shop for Western corporations who are either are in the country currently or coming to the country to understand their external environment, to understand the political situation, the outlook for the war, uh, to understand also just execution on the ground. Who do you work with? Negotiations with retailers. And then getting into very nitty-gritty execution of doing pricing, right, uh, with, with retailers and working with distributors and picking distributors that you work with. Where do you work in the country? How do you segment your customers, et cetera, et cetera. And getting so really into the nitty-gritty of best practices and execution on the ground. And the idea being helping these companies then make the case to corporate, right? Whether, you know, corporates in Germany or UK or the United States of why this is such an attractive investment destination and to be giving, you know, more money to create those jobs and to, to, to drive growth uh, in Ukraine. Because I mean, this is how the country gets out of the war. It needs that Western money to to develop. Well, I think you'll definitely succeed. We're going to talk once again Well, when I get back, because I'll be on the, on the front line reporting trip. I'm going to let you know how it goes from there as well. But uh, before we finish this one, like I said, very last question here. What's something you'd like to give out to, like, my audience is mostly um, in California, Texas, and, and the East Coast? 
so all these interesting people and again mostly in the United States from here in Kiev what's the number one thing you want people in the United States to know about Ukraine what should they know about Ukraine wow I mean look the cliche thing is the resilience that's what inspired me being here in May and, and there's a lot of myths you, you see on the headlines that you know the country's at war and people have this impression that you know they're walking down the streets of Kiev and there's hand-to-hand combat everywhere and grenades <laughs> blowing up or something and you've been here long enough to know that's that's not the case but that said I mean, I read a stat, over 80% of Ukrainians report knowing somebody well who has been either killed on the front lines or has been severely wounded. I mean, the war is just ever-present, it's omnipresent in everybody's mind. And also, these people are fighting. For the, I, I get questions from clients, if they're not in Ukraine, say, what's gonna happen in the next three months, six months, when's the war gonna end, etc. I'm on the ground here, everybody's asking, where are we in three years from now? Where are we in six years from now? Is my 12-year-old child, is he gonna be fighting Russia in 10 years? Right. So much more. I mean, this is existential. Right. So, I mean, it's just honestly just a a beautiful feeling being here of just the strength, the determination, the resilience, stories of altruism. I'm I'm sure you've heard them, too, of people just doing things with and for each other just because everybody understands they're in this together. And and I think I mean, if you want to give a message back to Americans, I I mean, I come from the U.S. Right. I'm, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. Right. It's really inspiring and amazing to see. I mean, particularly in the U.S. with our social, extreme social divisions, it's incredible to see a society actually coming together really strongly and critically coming together for these values, for these virtues, right? These liberal ideas of, you know, obviously democracy and self-determination, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just beautiful. And honestly, that's what's inspired me to completely alter my career, quit my job, start this business here and uh, do what I can for the, you know, reconstruction well thank you mark and i can understand you because this is also the reason why i come here for the fourth time at this point to report i will definitely meet up once again uh, and again today we are disturbed because we arrived yesterday morning didn't check our batteries and we're, we're a bit poor on equipment but i'll manage and uh, as i always say happiness is mandatory thank you mark very good thank you Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.